From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. At the Undisciplined Science Show, we introduce you to a natural scientist working in a subject like biology. Then we welcome a social scientist from a field like communication. And then we introduce them to each other. Today's meetup, the plant physiologist and the political scientist. That's Undisciplined, after the news. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today on the show, we're talking about solving political corruption on Earth and sending plants into outer space. And if those two areas of research sound like they couldn't be more different, well, that's the idea. Joining us today in studio are Yasora Kwan, who studies labor market effects on politics, and Bruce Bugby, who has been working with NASA to figure out how to grow plants in outer space for more than 30 years. First up, the political scientist. If you want to end poverty in the developing world, what's the first thing you need to do? Well, according to the global anti-corruption group Transparency International, you need to end corruption. That's all. You know, just in corruption. Okay, so obviously that's a tall order. So where do we start? How about increasing government wages? The logic is simple. If government employees are making more money, then they don't have to resort to graft and bribery. But does that work? Our first guest offered an answer last year in the Journal of Policy Modeling, Yasora Kwan, welcome to Undisciplined. Hi, thanks for inviting me. So before we get to this answer, let's talk about this question. What made you want to know whether raising salaries could reduce corruption? So um, in the last few decades, there have been some um, policy experiments by um, governments all across the world. Um, by increasing their wage, they wanted to see whether that actually reduced corruption or not. So in 1980s, Singapore, um, Singaporean government adopted this policy which dramatically increased government wages, right, to f- fight um, fight corruption. And in 90s and 2000s, like Peru and um, Argentina adopted also similar policy to combat corruption. But- so. But they've offered mixed evidence, right? These studies have shown different things? Yeah. So there have been a lot of studies on this topic to see you know, whether there's any correlation between government wages and corruption. But a lot of these studies um, have focused on a single case or like a single region or like a very limited time period. And the findings from all those, con- uh, those studies are not consistent. So they don't have any consistency sort of consistent conclusion that can confirm that increased government wage actually reduces corruption. So we wanted to find that, you know, by bringing more cases and expanding time period, you know, whether we can sort of uh, find stronger evidence that there is a strong uh, correlation between government wage and corruption. Okay, so you want to tackle this question, does raising salaries reduce corruption? How do you go about doing this? You had to bring in a lot of data. Yes. So we uh, gather um, the average uh, wage level of the central government from 49 countries from 1999 to 2008, so about 10 years of time period. And then we, um, we took the ratio of government wage to um, the, indus- the average industrial wage to see you know, the, how the relative of government wage in relation to the average industrial wage will affect uh, corruption. And we also got gather a lot of data um, that on 
other factors that could affect corruption. So like monitoring systems or penalties, right, to control those factors. So when we control all other factors, whether we can still find any effect of government wage or not. So that's something that we want to know in, our, in this research. And it sounds like it would take a lot of time to, to yes. find all the sources of the research and then yeah. to control for all the variables. Yes. How, how long does an experiment like this take? So gathering data itself took almost um, um, like a few months, right? And then and then we used uh, various statistical mo- like modeling te- techniques to uh, analyze those data. And And the answer you came to is, well, it's nuanced, right? Yeah, so the short answer is yes. Um, re- increasing government wages does help reducing corruption. But the question is, you know, how feasible it is um, in reality. So our finding is that, so in general, the less developed countries tend to have higher level of corruption than more economically wealthy countries. However, um, for this last developed country to reduce the level of corruption to the level of um, um, level of advanced indus- industrial countries, um, they have to reduce. Uh, they have to increase government wages almost by seven times. Wow! So right, that's, so that's unfeasible. So increasing government wage, yes, helps. But how feasible it is? Well, in case of Singapore, right? Singapore used to be very poor countries in 1960s, especially right after British like colonization. Um, they had a very high level of corruption. In 1980s, as their economy grew uh, dramatically, they were able to afford that. Um, sort of such dramatic increase in government wages, right? So if something like that happens, yes, you know, it's feasible. But if you're talking about somewhere like in Congo, right, or somewhere in um, in Kenya, and then we try to, you know, increase, you know, for, for those governments to increase government wages by seven times, right, uh, how realistic it is. Do little increases work? I mean, maybe not as well, but but is it, a, is it a J curve or is it pretty linear? So it is pretty linear. So the little bit of increase will work. So I think the one of the most important implications from this research is, again, it's very nuanced. So yes, you know, Government wage is very helpful, but you know we cannot solely rely on this, right? There's so many other factors and institutional mechanism that could curve corruption. So, in not not only not only increasing government wages, but we could also think about you know sort of strengthening monitoring system, right? And then sort of maybe have a stricter penalties for um, for corrupt officials. Now, when you when you go into something like this, when you go into a project like this. Do you kind of hope that you're going to find a magic bullet? Do you think like maybe may, maybe this is the thing, this is the thing that's going to solve all problems? Or do you know that you're probably only going to figure out like one step that can be taken? Well, of course, you know, um, when, when you first, you know, start your research, you always have a bigger hope, right? But at the same time, because you've done this kind of research so many times that you know that, you know, it's very unlikely that you're going to find like one, you know, shot solution for everything, right? Um, so I think I think it's kind of, I'm kind of mixed whenever I do my research. Yeah. What other research can and should be done on this topic, uh, on the topic of, of limiting corruption? What do you think? Uh, so besides government wages, I think we should uh, examine much more about um, the quality of governance, 
for instance. So like so far, a lot of study has been focusing only on monitoring systems or you know, whether con- the regime is democratic or not. But democratic regime doesn't necessarily guarantee the quality of governance, right? So maybe uh, we can go further and then you know sort of investigate you know how sort of quality of governance could affect um, corruptions and corrupt officials. And what are you working on right now? What's your next your next project? So. Uh, in terms of corruption, yes, that's our next step. So we're going to try to uh, find a way to measure the quality of governance, right? Uh, but again, you know, as a social scientist who often use quantitative analysis as a method to do research, finding quantifiable measures is always very challenging, right? So uh, there's something that will be even harder because at least for corruption, there's index where you can actually go go to like, you know, somewhere like trans. trans, trans Trans, uh, Transparency Internationals, where they provide index for corruption across countries. Um, but for quality of governance, um, there's less of um, quantifiable measures, and we have to sort of be creative in coming up with those measures. That Yasura Kwan. Yasura, will you stick around with us until the end of our show to talk about something that has everything and nothing at all to do with political corruption? Yes. <laughs> Our next guest is a plant physiologist who spent three decades working on NASA-funded projects to develop life support systems for people traveling far from our planet. A little over a year ago, Bruce Bugby began his latest project with NASA, a space technology research institute called the Center for the Utilization of Biological Engineering in Space, or CUBES. Bruce Bugby, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you, Matthew. Bruce, it would take... Well, like two years to get from Earth to Mars. So if we're going to establish a human presence there, we're going to need food. Can you talk about what CUBES is doing to solve this puzzle? CUBES is an extension of what NASA's been working on for oh, 50 years. Uh, ever since NASA starts thinking about leaving the planet, we start thinking about how we're going to provide food for people. Um, so the, the focus of CUBES is using as much of the resources that are already on Mars as possible. Everything in space is literally worth its weight in gold. So if we can bring some tiny thing and it, not bring it, then it really decreases the cost of the mission. So, so CUBES is focused on what we call in situ resource utilization. And, and that includes... For instance, growing things in Martian soil, right? Yeah, yes. And but that's hard, right? Because like uh, Mars is quite a bit further from the sun than we are, and there's less light there. That that's a problem for growing plants, right? Not as much as you might think. It there's this thing called the inverse square law, but based on that, Mars only has forty percent of our light because it's farther from the sun, but. Mars has almost no atmosphere, so what sun does get to Mars gets right through the atmosphere to the surface. So, in fact, they have 60% of our light level. Okay, so and it's, you can, it's, you can it's grow less, plants in that. But, yeah, you can grow plants in that. But light isn't the only thing that's different. What are the other factors that have to be considered? How, how, and then once we've considered those factors, how do we uh, simulate that here on Earth? Everybody thinks that we're going to grow plants on Mars in a greenhouse. And there's thousands of creative artists with a picture of a greenhouse on the red planet. And wouldn't you like to grow there and tend the plants in the greenhouse? But it's not going to be a greenhouse for two reasons. One, it has to be pressurized. If the, Their atmospheric pressure is almost zero. So you have to make something that can hold the pressure. 
two, there's no atmosphere, so meteorites the size of basketballs come hurling in, and we don't have anything that can handle that without breaking. And, and finally, because there's no atmosphere, the greenhouse would have to filter all the cosmic radiation, and we don't know how to do that either, so we're going to bury it. The, the food production will be underground. And our latest proposal with this CUBES project is to use fiber optics, big concentrating parabolic mirrors, and then fiber optics to deliver the light in, underground to the plants. Now, are we building this on Earth right now, like, like models of this? There's multiple groups that have built things that simulate aspects of Mars. There's, there's one in Hawaii that's pretty, pretty well known. Um, and they're, they're trying to simulate the isolation that people would have, this, the uh, psychological aspects of it. Um, they're also simulating closure. You think, what are we going to do about gravity? But the closure is a big problem. Everything has to be perfectly recycled. You, you, lose, you lose one drop of water. Wow, you've got to replace that drop of water. Yeah, that's not coming back. Yeah. yeah. We're, so we're still a long way from setting up colonies on other planets. Are, are there benefits to doing this sort of research here on Earth? Are there things that we're learning from doing this that's, that are helping us live our lives, even if we never live on another world? Mm-hmm. Perhaps in, in the last several years, one of the biggest direct benefits is what we call indoor agriculture, growing food under electric lights. Um, it's also called vertical farming where you grow it on shelves. In New York City, you've got a skyscraper, you need tomatoes, they're on floor 12, and you go up and there's your tomatoes. Um, That's a direct parallel from the work we're doing from NASA. Now, how economically viable that is, that remains to be seen, but there's really billions of dollars of startup capital going into indoor agriculture now on the Earth. You started doing this research more than 30 years ago. At that time, did you suspect we might actually be on Mars by now? No, I don't think I was that optimistic about it. But um, it, it, it's certainly been a challenging project and, and uh, it engages everybody every year. If we were talking about the spinoffs. You can imagine all the high school kids doing science fair posters on how we're going to live on Mars. They get really excited about it. Um, to me, that the educational benefits for kids in schools are enormous. Because people get excited about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's changed in the years since you began this work? Some of it maybe is confronting some of the realities. Um, you know, getting a, as you get better, usually when you get better understanding of something, it, you realize how hard it really is to do. If you knew how hard it was from the beginning, you might not ever start. But um, understanding the reality is better. But then also understanding the opportunity. Um, for example, Mars has a trace of nitrogen in its atmosphere. Well, we either have to haul the nitrogen fertilizer from the Earth to Mars, or we need to get microorganisms that can fix that nitrogen into fertilizer. And my colleague here at USU, Lance Seafelt, is working on exactly that, microbial fixation of nitrogen on Mars to make fertilizer for, uh, to grow the plants or the people so we don't have to haul it from the Earth. Now, if that works, 
wow, right, right now we use a lot of fossil fuels to make fertilizer. If this works, we won't be using fossil fuels to make fertilizer anymore. So when we go to Mars, we're not just going to be bringing plants with us. We'll probably have to bring some microbes with us as well. We do. Yeah. Wow. What what else are we gonna have to bring with us? What's what's on that shuttle that we, we're gonna absolutely have to bring along with us to make this work? We need the stuff that in transit, like you said, the most common scenario is two years one way, so you you can't get to those resources for two years. So you gotta eat while you're going there, and so you gotta have a space farm in your spacecraft, or you have to have a lot of bag lunches with you to to make it. So we need that even for the uh, spacecraft. But the minimal set of things is really fairly small. I mean, there's, there's water on Mars that we can access. And if there's water, we can get oxygen. We can make rocket fuel from the resources on Mars. So the, the, the hope is just the same as coming across the West in, in, in the hand-drawn carts, you, you have as little as possible in those carts and you live off the land as you're going. So Cubes is one year in, I think, at this point. What's, what's up for the coming years in this project? It's a big group of people. There's one center in the United States. Um, it includes UC Berkeley, uh, UC Davis, ourselves, and Stanford. So th- those four universities. Um, and it's a diverse group of people. Um, for example, some of my colleagues at UC Davis are working on pharmaceutical synthesis from plants because pharmaceuticals degrade, and especially in, with cosmic radiation, they can degrade pretty fast. So we're going to have to grow the pharmaceuticals. So there's another little botanicals that take care of pain and other other pharmaceutical things. A um, lot of genetic engineering to transform plants to make them better adapted to that environment. Um, and a lot of what we call synthetic biology, using microbes to build things that we never thought of having them do before. That's fascinating. That's Bruce Bugby. Bruce, are you ready for a chat about something a little closer to our home planet? Well, I, I can try it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then now for an introduction, Bruce, uh, I'd like to introduce you to political scientist Yasola Kwan. And Yasola, I'm really happy to introduce you to plant physiologist Bruce Bugby. And so here's how this part of the show works. I'm going to ask you a question. The question I'm going to ask isn't about political corruption and it isn't about space plants, but I suspect that both of your areas of expertise will come into play when you consider this subject. So here's the question. How important is the idea of rethinking in research? And how hard is it once you get an idea in your head about the way things are supposed to work to accept that the world might actually work differently than the way that you assumed. Bruce, you want to take that on first? I tell my students, that's why we call it research, because we're taking something we thought we knew and looking at it again. And one of the deep satisfactions of doing that is to overturn paradigms, stuff that we thought was conventional wisdom. You find out it's wrong. And to a scientist, that's really satisfying. So it isn't just generating new knowledge, but reorganizing and rethinking past knowledge. But I, but I like the term research. We looked at it once and we're looking at it again. 
So what do you teach? You teach too, and I know that you're real big on telling your students you got to rethink problems. What What do you tell them? Um, I think especially when we think about politics, you know, a lot of people think that you know they already know about politics, right? They read newspaper, they read like you know they're like like always like hear about different sort of you know news articles, and then they're like sort of exposed to TVs, right? However, a lot of politics that we know are based on stereotypical image of politics rather than the fact. Right, and if we are gonna go about studying politics as a researcher, I think we're thinking is definitely essential. So, for instance, you know, <clears throat> the one of the the common misunderstanding of politics comes from you know, um, you know, assessment of politics based on the left and the right. Right, so the left is understood as progressive and liberal, while the right is understood as like a conservative. Right. Um, however, the 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 left and right ideology doesn't really travel across the countries. Right. What 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 is considered as left and what is considered as the right changes over time and changes depending on which country context that you're talking about. So I think it's really important to sort of you know open up your mind and then sort of you know think very differently. But is it? Do you find that it's becoming hard in our society right now to get people to think differently because we're so entrenched and we're surrounded by these social media bubbles? Yes, I do find actually very difficult to um, push students to rethink about those things. Um, in a lot of cases, especially when it comes to political ideology, they kind of accept it almost as um, almost as dogmatism, and, and you know those things are kind of they they kind of. Um, grow up with that, you know, through the dinner table around their parents, around their friends, right, around their teachers. So um, I think um, that is one of the biggest challenge as a, um, as a person, uh, as a teacher, um, when dealing with students. Bruce, I got to figure that uh, you run into similar problems uh, in terms of getting people to rethink the way they think about space exploration and our future on other worlds. Um, you mentioned earlier just the, this idea that we all have that's on the cover of every book about Mars I've ever seen, which is the greenhouse, is unfeasible. Um, how do you start to unlock people's minds from the entrenched ideas about what our space future looks like? Oh, I, I, I suppose as teachers, you know, we use the Socratic method and try and ask students questions. And you ask them some pretty simple question, and they say, well, duh, that's, why do you ask that? And then you turn it around so they realize they don't really understand the answer. I, I think we all do that with Ph.D. comprehensive exams all the time. You take a student that they're bright and they've done well in their classes and now they're in on their comprehensive exam and you ask them some simple questions and and a series of questions and they realize, God, I guess I don't really understand that like I thought I did. And that helps to get people to rethink things. That That's such a core of science anyway is to try to how, – how many times do students write – my research proves that X causes Y, and you, you edit out that word proves. <laughs> it suggests that X causes Y. Well, and you have to make it okay for them to be wrong, right? I mean, like, it, it, we have to lower the consequences maybe for people being wrong in order to get to that point in the world where we can accept the idea that new ideas can come along and replace our current ideas? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm real engaged in the whole thing of politics personally, and I mean I spent my younger years of my life as a very liberal person. I mean I didn't get arrested in jail, but I mean I was marched and and 
then you realize that the other half of the country can't be all wrong. <laughs> and, and that's helped me personally try to see what's good about both approaches to politics. And it, it also makes it easier for me to push through different uh, administrations because I don't see one side's all right and the other side is all wrong. But boy, does that happens a lot in politics. I mean, it just the other side is completely wrong. Do you how, how do you address that when you when you find people who are so steadfast in their political ideologies? What is what are the steps that you take to to wrestle them free of that? Um, as Bruce said, I ask a lot of questions. So, like for instance, you know, um, I know especially in this country that, that you know welfare or government support, right, is considered as, um, has like some very strong negative connotation, right? But in fact, government is there to, you know, work for our own benefits, right? And in a lot of, I mean, and then the definition of welfare is actually very broad. So like, for instance, I'll ask students, like, you know, how many of you get student loan? And a lot of students who think that they, they never receive government welfare before will raise their hand, which is part of welfare, right? So I just start to like sort of really push student by asking a lot of questions and then sort of uh, sort of uh, try to make clear that, you know, they are part of it, right, in the things that they think they weren't. So um, that's their strat- uh, That's my strategy. Another thing is that I think I always emphasize that research is all about dealing with competing hypotheses. Right? You're not only making your argument and you're not only trying to prove that you know that your argument is uh, your argument works but you know you always have to address the other factors that could affect the thing that you're trying to explain right, which is computing hypothesis so I think it's extremely important for researchers um, to to think about you know different ideas and different views and different perspectives I think we could keep going but we're almost out of time Yasura Kwan thank you for joining us on Undisciplined thank you for inviting And Bruce Bugby, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. The Undisciplined Science Show is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.